here's what it is. I'm sure you've been aware of it already this week here at Hume. I'm not sure if you're a Christian. I love that people who aren't knowingly come here knowing that. I love that people come here thinking they're Christians and they're not really. I know there are struggling Christians sitting here. I know there are strong, thriving Christians sitting here. And I want to bless all of you with a clarity about what the gospel is, what it means to know and live and proclaim the gospel. And then I want to save some time to have interaction and talk about anything you want. I've been a pastor and a theology professor for 30 years, over 30 years. And so I've been thinking about a lot of things for a long time, and I love to learn. And so I want to learn together with you. But here's what the gospel is. You, every one of you, were created by God in his image for his glory. That's the first point you need to know about the gospel, the good news. And that's you were created by God. And you're awesome. You know, the Lego movie song is actually accurate. Everything is awesome. And you know what's more awesome than anything in all of creation? Human beings. We're made in the image and likeness of God. We're created by him to actually reflect who he is in this world and glorify him with our lives. And we get to do that, but only in relationship with him. But here's the problem. We all, every one of us, the Bible says, have gone astray. We don't boot up living in a relationship with God where we're glorifying him and obeying him and faithfully following him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, the Bible says. Each of us has gone to his own way. And we have a penalty for that. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And we're all having to face death. And God judges sin. I hope you want a God who judges sin, who hates sin and hates evil. And he hates anything that's opposed to him in what actually makes his creation flourish. And so we're all in the same boat of having rebelled against God. But the good news is God doesn't leave us in that situation. He sends his son. See, God's always been father, son, and spirit. And he sends the son, and the, joy, the son is joyfully sent, and he becomes a human being. He's always been the eternal divine son, but he becomes a human being. And for 33 years, walks our streets and gets his hands dirty in the life that we all live and literally gets his hands bloody, paying the penalty for our sin. And so Jesus takes our place in a perfect life of obedience and a perfect sacrificial death. And all we have to do to benefit from Jesus taking our place is repent, turn from our sin, and trust Jesus in saving faith and depend on him and him alone as our source of restored relationship with God. And when we have that restored relationship, we're new creatures in Christ, and we're never the same. I think you could define a Christian as someone who's beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ and is never the same. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And so really, we depend on Jesus who died, lived and died, and then rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death and hell, and we trust him and everything's different now. And there are really just two ways to live, either your own way as your own God or in a relationship with God through Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So here's how the Apostle Paul describes what it means to be a minister of the gospel, to live this out. Look at this passage in Colossians chapter 1. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone 
mature in Christ. He goes on, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. There is so much great stuff packed into here of what it means to live the Christian life faithfully, to understand the gospel and live it out, not just as a disciple of Jesus, not just as a Christian, but as a minister of the gospel. Because God didn't just save you to save you, he saved you to glorify him and help others come to maturity in Christ. I think most Christians are clueless about how much God can and wants to use them in the lives of other people. And so we have got to realize that God has given us, the people who've trusted Jesus, the ability to be his means of drawing others into relationship with him and deepening relationship with him. And so Paul starts off with the all-important hymn we proclaim, talking about Jesus. We need to be known for Jesus. If you are considering going to a church or supporting a ministry or being involved with something, you need to ask the question, is this ministry about Jesus? Ask that about Hume Lake. Ask that about your church. Ask that about my church or any ministry you're interested in. Is this ministry about some dude who considers himself a celebrity pastor, and it's more about him, actually, than Jesus, if you just listen to all the stuff that's said? Is this ministry about this ministry, or is it about Jesus? Him we proclaim, we lift him up. And so it's got to be Jesus-focused, Christ-centered. So it's him we proclaim. Would you leave that verse up there so we can just hang with it the whole time? There you go. Thank you. Him we proclaim. And notice it's not just him we talk about or him we occasionally mention. Proclaim. These are the kinds of words the Bible uses to describe how we talk about Jesus proclamation, preaching. I know those aren't words we're very comfortable with because they're words filled with conviction and boldness and confidence, which isn't cool these days unless it's about some social issue that, that everybody thinks you should support. But when it comes to Jesus, we should be bold in our proclamation. We should be confident. We should be declaring the good news of Jesus from the rooftops knowing, as Jesus said, it's going to bring persecution, it's going to bring oppression, it's going to bring people giving you an eye roll at school, thinking you're some puritanical religious person. Well, you got to take that, knowing it's part of the deal. But talk about Jesus. So we proclaim Christ. That's the, the heart of the gospel, Jesus, right? But then he says, warning everyone. Warning everyone. So this is serious. Warning them about what? Well, Judgment Day. When you hear warning language in the Bible, it's talking about Judgment Day. You know, one of the greatest lies Satan has ever come up with is this idea of karma. I even hear Christians say, is that karma or what? Right? We watch these videos of instant karma. You know, they're kind of enjoyable to watch, you know, when people get their comeuppance right away when they do something they shouldn't have. But, but karma is a great lie Satan came up with. It's this idea that life is just a never-ending cycle, and you just come back in your next life based on how you lived your previous life. A lower life form if you didn't live it well, or a higher life form if you did. Talk about a great lie. You know what the Bible says? It's not cyclical. It's linear. It is appointed for man to, be, to, to live once and then face judgment. That, that's what the Bible says. There's this linear. We're heading somewhere. We're heading to the day when every single person will stand before God. Are, are you ready for that? Are the people in your life ready for that? And so we warn people that judgment day is coming. We answer to our creator for how we live this created life. 
Are you ready for judgment day? And there's judgment day coming, and God's wrath will be poured out on people who have rebelled against him their whole lives. So we warn everyone, pleading with them to flee the wrath to come. You know, I don't hear people talk about hell much anymore. It's just, ugh, we don't want to be those kinds of Christians, do we? Jesus was that kind of person. Every prophet in the Bible, every apostle talked about the, de the, the deal that's coming one day of having to face God. So we warn everyone and teach everyone. There's content. It's not just about entertainment. It's not just about being jokey. It's not just about being fun all the time. There's content to it. We teach everyone. We want our understanding to be increased and deepened and clarified. So there's, there's instruction. There's, there's learning that has to go on, which means there's work required. Because learning requires work, does it not? And so, so there's, we're warning everyone, but we're teaching everyone. And how do we do it? With all wisdom. We're just bleh, but we think, how will this person be helped? Where are they? We ask lots of questions to find out what the wise way to grow as Christians and minister as Christians may be. So we, we warn, we teach we do it wisely. And notice the everyones. They're actually there in the Greek text, those everyones. It, there's a comprehensiveness to this. There's, there's an, an ability as we live the Christian life to have an influence on people we just have a passing interaction with. Remember, I was walking with my friend, Eddie, one time. And Eddie's always thinking. I walked by this little baby in a stroller, and I just went down. And you know you, what you do with how you do babies. I just talk, hey, buddy, how you doing? And just talk to them. I usually scare babies. But this one actually enjoyed the interaction. And, and we walked away. The, Bible, the baby smiled and giggled, and we walked away. And Eddie said, hey, good job, E. Way to just contribute to that baby's positive understanding of humanity. He will never remember you or that interaction. But that has an influence. Don't minimize the way God can use you, even in passing circumstances. When you, you smile at somebody and you, 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 you greet them warmly and you show interest in them. And maybe even have an opportunity to say, God bless you today. Or God's been so good to me. And I'll, I'll pray for you today. How can I pray for you? Where you could just have a passing interaction and be a blessing to people. It's not hard. It's not complicated. It only gets weird if we're weird about it all. And so we wanted to, to have a comprehensive influence in this way. And why? Well, here's the goal of it all. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Again, presentation language is judgment day language. In other words, at the end of your life, what are you going to have to show for it? A super high level at Super, super Mario Smash Brothers or something? Or what are you going to have to show for your life? Yeah, I mean, entertainment's fine. But, but what really drives you? What, do you? what are your goals when you wake up in the morning in the midst of all the things you have to do? What are your goals? Is it having an influence on other people so they're more mature in Christ, so they know Jesus better, they depend on Jesus more, they adore him more, they treasure him more, because you do, and you're setting an example and being an influence in that way. We will stand on judgment day, and more than anything else, we have the privilege of showing for our lives people who know Jesus and are deeper in the relationships with him than they otherwise would have been if they didn't know you. That's the goal. You know, I, I talk to young people a lot about dating. And, and what I say to them is, look, 
You need a date in a way. If you're a Christian, you need a date in a way where when she breaks up with you, which she probably will statistically at your age, right? Most relationships with young, young people don't last into a marriage, right? So, but just so have that in mind, right? Don't start playing house right away. Don't start acting like you're married long before you are, and you're not. And so, so when you break up, here's your goal, to get invited to that other person's wedding. Wouldn't that be cool? And here's, here's an even better thing. At the wedding, have her new husband come over to you, buddy, and say, thank you for dating my new wife. You know what I'm saying? You with me? No. So what's your name? Oh, I know you. Do I know you? No. What's your name? Oh, what is it? Avon. Avon. Say, yeah, say you're dating Avon. Tell me your name. Alyssa. Alyssa, Alyssa say you're dating Avon. This is just, say you're dating Avon. Okay. Just hypothetical. Don't get, let's not get weird. So, yeah, uh, hypothetical. Is that your boyfriend? No. Okay. No, no, I mean there. No, 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 stay with me. All right, say you guys are dating. And what I'm saying is, Avon, date Alyssa. Date Alyssa in a way where when she breaks up with you, Avon, right, two years, a year from now, six months from now, next week, she breaks up with you, that you had such a healthy relationship with her that you get invited to her wedding to another dude. You with me? Got it now? Yeah. Look at, and, and Alyssa's new husband comes over to you at the reception and says, hey, Avon, thank you for dating my wife. She's more, here's, she's more like Jesus because she spent time with you. And she's a better wife now than she would have otherwise been if she hadn't hung out with you, Avon. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. Right. Wouldn't that be cool? Isn't that great? People laugh at me when I say that. They laugh at me as if that's absurd and that could never happen. Why? Well, here's why. Because they think, well, almost every dating relationship I know, that could never happen because we went way too far physically. We went way too far emotionally, right? We, it wasn't all about Jesus. It wasn't all about presenting my girlfriend more mature in Christ or everybody I know more mature in Christ. It was too much about me, right? And the goal, wouldn't it be great if Avon invited you to his wedding too? Yeah, that's it. And then his new wife comes over to you and says, Alyssa, thank you for dating Avon. He's more like Jesus because you hung out with him. Thank you. you. You guys with me? That's not just dating relationships. That's relationships in general. Oh, this is what Jim Elliott said. He said, Lord, don't let me be a milepost along a single road. A martyred missionary, 27, said, don't let me be a milepost along a single road, but a fork whereupon men, when meeting me, will see Jesus and have to choose one way or the other. He wanted his life to make a difference. And, and that's what we're able to do, presenting people mature in Christ. But you need to know it's toil, it's hard work, it's struggle. But we do it with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so it's hard work, just know that's part of the deal. But depend on the spirit of God to enable you to do it. 
to be able to live that way. So the gospel is something we internalize that transforms us, that then turns us not just into disciples, but ministers of the gospel who can have a powerful impact on the lives of other people. All right. What do you want to talk about? Any que- First, let's, any questions you have about what I've been saying for the last 15 minutes? Yeah, tell me your name. Hey, Nathan. Oh, I don't believe in karma. I, I see it. No, I, I think karma, it, it, it's an idea from Eastern religions that there's some force out there, some spiritual force that when you do something bad, uh, has a bad effect on you, but when you do something good, it has a good effect on you. And I'm not saying that living in a good way can have a positive effect or living in a bad way can have a negative effect, but sometimes that's not the case, right? And, and, and think about the mentality that can have, that good things in my life are because I'm good. Well, what is it? Uh, sound of Music? You guys like Sound of Music? Remember Maria sings that song? So things are starting to really go well, and she's falling in love with the captain. You know the song she sings? Anybody know the one I'm talking about? I must have done something good somewhere in my life. I must have done something good. Oh, that's a dangerous way to think. That anything good in your life obviously comes from how good you are. Is that the grace of the gospel? Is that the grace of the Christian mentality that good in my life is because I'm so doggone good and must deserve it? Or any bad in my life must because because I did something bad? I'm sick because I did something. Imagine the guilt you'd walk around with because bad stuff happens in all our lives. Imagine the arrogance you'd walk around with if you thought everything good in your life was because you're so good. See, that's the opposite of grace. And so, so, yeah, I think karma is a actually brilliant lie. Satan's the father of lies, right? He comes up with the lies that we believe that get us away from God and the truth of the gospel and the, and the word of God. So, so I, I don't think karma in the way Eastern religions teach it is a truth. Because the Bible says that appointed a man once to die and then to face the judgment. There's not this never-ending cycle of karmic power or, or death that comes your way where you come back in the next life as, as an animal or a lower life form and you come back even more superior than you were previously. Because I, I do, I, But people think that way more and more because of the influence of Eastern religion. So I don't think karma is a true idea. I think the Bible teaches something very different. Yes? Does that help? All right. What else do you want to talk about? Anything? Yeah, tell me your name. Adam. Adam. Oh. Adam, I love your question. My biggest struggle in my Christian walk is still my biggest struggle. And that is um, the greatest sin I battle is impatience. Uh, so, so what that means is prayer is really hard for me. Because prayer, it takes great patience grounded in a great sense of dependence on God. And so in my daily Christian life... A, a deep, faithful prayer. I pray. I could think you could say I'm prayerful in, throughout my day and in set-aside times, but it's work, man. It's a struggle. I'm, I'm distracted. i got a million things. It's so hard for me to pray in a way that people I really admire in their prayer lives pray. 
So I feel a, a real immaturity and a struggle in my prayer life, but I think it's grounded in the sin of impatience. That just sitting with the Lord, not having anything productive seeming to be happening is super hard for me. And so I would say that's my biggest struggle. And that impatience, which can have an anger with it too, uh, leads to a lot. I was a, I was a football, I was a really good football player. And it's part of it's because I had, had an anger problem. I, like my son is a great athlete, my son Sam, but I don't, ever, I don't think he'll ever be a great athlete because he's too emotionally healthy. <laughs> because do you know 80% of the guys in the NFL didn't have dads at home? And they're working out all kind of dad stuff, taking people out, right? And so, yeah, we're, we're so, so, so there are positives you can get out of things like that, but, but I would say that's been my biggest struggle and still is. Thank Good question, Adam. What else? Yes, in the back, in the shadow. Think about that. Was she there? I'm trying to remember if we invited her. Or invited. You know what? Part of the problem is I never really had a girlfriend. I dated girls, but I, I didn't have a girlfriend until my wife, Donna. When I moved to my high school halfway through my junior year, Donna's locker was across from mine, and I immediately noticed her and did some recon and found out that she was dating a guy named John who, yeah, and they were, they, they were class sweet, they were officially class sweethearts in the, in the yearbook. And so I had to wait a year and a half for Donna to finally break up with John. And, and then I had become friends with him, so I, out of respect for John, I waited two weeks. And then I moved in. <laughs> And then I moved in like a Zephyr, never looked back. Uh, but, but no, I didn't. Could I have dated, invited any of the girls? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah, tell me here. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, John is an amazing guy. Uh, we, we worked in residence life for many years, and... Uh, we lived in little dorm room hot rooms in, in residence halls and things, and we didn't have barely any money most of our marriage. John got a full ride to MIT, became one of the world's leading experts on polymers, plastics, and retired at 40. He, John has, John has a, an airstrip at one of his homes where he lands his plane. We were doing dishes in a bathtub in a, in a dorm room that could, so I often wondered if Donna thought she made a mistake, but um, no, John didn't get invited. He was well on to other things by that point, yes. And Donna wasn't a Christian when she, before we met, so that was interesting. Tell me your name. Abigail, I love that name. Yeah, so I think it's a really bad idea to date a non-Christian if you're a Christian. Um, because what you're doing is increasingly giving your heart to someone whose heart isn't being given to Jesus. 
and doesn't share the same fundamental radical worldview of someone who's a disciple of Jesus. And so, yes, sometimes you can do missionary dating and that person may come to Christ. But most of the time, that's not what happens. You know what usually happens? That Christian becomes more and more lukewarm so that they can have an easy relationship with a person who has a different God. I mean, it's a different God. It's a different object of worship, right? It, because we're all, we all worship. So if it's not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's another God of some kind or gods of some kind that they're giving themselves. So you've got fundamentally different centers of devotion and treasuring and ways of thinking. And so that's invariably either going to cause a lot of conflict or pull that Christian into more and more of a lukewarmness in their Christian faith, which is tragic. Uh, or it ends up just living separate lives. Where it, uh, one of the most tragic things I have to deal with as a pastor is the amount of, especially women, there are a few men in my life I've seen bring the kids to church without the mom. It's almost always the other. It's always, always the mom bringing the kids to church while the husband sits home catching the early football game. And that's, that's not how God designed families to be. And so, so it's not just you in this relationship now. It's you as it may be in marriage with kids and a ministry or not or faithful church membership or not because there's a tugging prioritization and hierarchy of loves going on. And so I just think it's a really bad idea. I think it's a kind of being unequally yoked. And I know there are a lot of really good people, uh, but don't settle for somebody who doesn't love Jesus in ways that inspires you. Don't, don't settle. And, and it's, it's one of the worst decisions. It's the second most important decision you'll ever make in your life, who you marry. The first is trusting Jesus. The second is who you marry. Don't settle for anybody but someone who will not only encourage you in your relationship with the Lord, but inspire you in your relationship with the Lord. Don't settle, Abigail, or anyone. I'm not talking directly. I know you might be asking for a friend. All right. Anything else? Yes, tell me your name. Jonathan. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, because one, dating for me was nothing serious when we started. And I was terribly under-discipled. I, I didn't go to, grow up going to church. I was a Christian since I was a little kid. But I didn't have, the first man who ever invested in me in a discipleship way, I was 23. Before that, it was simply no one, like I just was saying, talking to me like that. Nobody talked to me like that. Even Christians in my life would say, wow, she's pretty. Good job. Instead of saying, does she love Jesus? Does she walk with him? And so it, I was just immature and, and not well, well discipled, not discipled at all, really. Didn't grow up going to church, didn't have a youth pastor, never went to camp like this or anything, never, never had the kind of amazing ministers you have in your lives, many of you here, or families that nurture you in the Lord like that. And so I just didn't know any better. And, but when we, I started getting serious for the first time in a relationship with, with a, a a young lady, I realized I can't keep doing this if she doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. And I, that's actually how she ended up coming to Christ. I said, I said, it's still obvious you're coming to church with me, and we're not going to church together. And I, it's not fair to you. It's not right for me to keep doing this. And so it was Easter, March, 40 years ago this past March, that 
Donna got on her knees on Easter and trusted Christ for the first time. It, it, yeah, that's cool. All right. And by the way, she's doing an amazing seminar on trees. Donna loves trees. And the, do you know the Bible talks about trees? Uh, after God and humans, the second most referred to living things in the Bible are trees. And we're surrounded by these awesome trees. So she's fantastic. All right, one more question we have time for. Tell me your name. Moses. Yeah, intimacy before marriage as a Christian. Here's the key, that your intimacy always trails behind your level of commitment, right? So, so it's okay to grow in intimacy, but not in a way that's going ahead of the level of commitment. That should be clear and expressed. And so the level of commitment shifts when you just are going on dates, and then when it becomes exclusive... There can be, and it's not just physical intimacy we need to be concerned about. We need to have emotional and spiritual chastity as well. Like, if you're just dating, going and watching the sunrise every morning and reading your Bibles together and praying probably is a kind of spiritual intimacy you may want to reserve for your husband or wife one day, right? Uh, and so there can be sharing of very personal, intimate things that we need, we need chastity, we need self-control. We don't... We don't want to rush intimacy beyond the commitment level. I mean, I've had, most of my friends growing up weren't Christians. And I remember saying to them sometimes at their wedding, like naively, so where are you guys going to be living? And my buddy would look at me and go, where we have been? What are you talking about? I'm like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. How anticlimactic, right? You get married and you just go back home. That's weird, right? Now, so for so Christians, it's like, here we go, right? I remember my friends, we got married at, at 23, we got married at 23, and a lot of my friends would say, man, why are these guys getting married so young? And then they'd go, oh, yeah, you guys don't get to have sex yet. I understand. I understand, they'd say. And, and so it would change, right? Because, because we reserve certain things for the, for the Christian life and in, the, in marriage, right? So we don't let our intimacy ever get ahead of our level of commitment. Does that help, Moses? Yeah? One more. Oh, really big mistake. So, yeah, polygamy or, or, or having more than one wife is never something God approves of in the Bible. It's something tragically that happens in history that the Bible honestly reports. But you just look at the, the heartache and the trial and the evil and the brokenness that comes from those non-monogamous relationships, and you've got a mess every single time. All right, one more. idea what that's all about. That's right. All right. Let me, let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for these dear, dear young men and women who are sitting here wanting to learn here at camp this week, seeking to know what truth is. Lord, bless each one of them. Thank you that you know where each one of them is in their relationship with you. And Lord, I pray you'd be powerfully working in each heart, drawing them to you, showing them that you alone bring life, eternal life, and abundant life, and you alone deserve our worship. And so, Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being made in your image, of being able to have a relationship with you through Jesus, and being able to be ministers of the gospel and have a huge impact. So bless these dear ones, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.